Hi everybody, welcome back to Beef and Lamb New Zealand Seen and Heard. Um, actually just recently, so this is a wee bit of background, we went out on social media and said who would people like to hear from on uh, the podcast. We've done a lot of interviews, I think we're 75 or 80 now and we're starting to look for, for new ideas. We have a bit of a feel for what's quite popular. Um, and um, funnily enough, I'd already arranged today's guest, but the most popular request was for Doug Avery um, to come on. There was a lot of topics, but the specific speaker that most people mentioned, or that was mentioned more than any other else, was Doug Avery. So coincidentally, Doug's just written an article for Beef and Lamb New Zealand. It's up on our website. The link's there in the blurb called Bouncing Forward from a Crisis. So it, um nice time. I think people were thinking about a bit about his work. But Doug, we're going to talk a bit about your backstory but I noticed in the article you describe who you are, what you do now, and you call yourself once a farmer. Um, what are you up to these days? Uh, basically, I'm a storyteller now, Aaron. It sounds pretty uh, pretty uh, slack, but um, yeah, I, can, uh, I still, uh, my wife and I, Wendy, we still own um, 50% of Bonnevarie, our farm out there in Grassmere, and I'm passionate as hell about it, but Fraser. Uh, is a um, a super a super model of the past, and he's making a bloody good job of that place. And uh, I think that an old man like me mucking around out there do more harm than good. So he's running that, and of course I've still got a hell of a lot of energy. And um, I got into sort of um, firstly sort of trying to promote dryland pasture species, but as that went on, I ended up. Uh, firstly, coming clean about my own brush with depression, or was more mm. than a brush; it was a full, full-blown case. And uh, and then I got fascinated, firstly, with my own uh, life story and and what had happened and why it had happened. And then I started to realise that I had the, the capability of um, helping a hell of a lot of other people. Yep. And as I started doing that, I found I got uh, as much satisfaction, if not more, from that process. And um, and then I wrote a book. And when I wrote the book, that went nuts. And uh, I've been all over the world. <laughs> and I thought, well, I could hardly tell people I'm a, I'm a farmer anymore. Um, but I, I think I'm a farmer at heart. But it's the farming, uh, it's definitely the storytelling, which is the bulk of my time. Yeah, I think once a farmer, you're always a farmer. Somewhere like, like I don't farm, but I'm from a farming family, and it's it's in your blood, isn't it? Um, but okay, um, there's quite a few people know the background, and we're going to drill into some of the things you just touched on there. But it's an old uh, trope in in storytelling or or impromptu talking, or I use it a lot in these podcasts to structure it around past, present, future. I see that you've done that in your article a bit too, but. Tell us your story then. Tell, um, in, a, in a synopsis, I guess that the story of yourself and Bonavery and, and the um, the process. What happened there? I mean, it was about 1997. You had a bit of an epiphany moment, I guess you might call it, or a, um, that yeah. that a lot of what you're doing now sort of comes from the, the changes in the process you went through. Yeah, yeah. Like I I I, um, I got away to a pretty good start. My father was a really good farmer, and uh, I guess pretty much all my life. That's all I really wanted to do. I uh, I just I just loved helping him, and I came home on the farm and we kicked into it and uh, virtually straight away started to grow the, the business. And uh, you know, my, we'd had two generations of Avery's had just uh, been on what was just a 206 hectare dry land, totally dry land property right by the Lake Grassmere Salt Lakes. Uh, we started to grow it and uh, things were going quite well. Um, had a family, a wife and family and all the things that you do. And then we uh, bought another place, leased the place, so we spent buying more land and mm. uh, plunged, plunged into a drought that never really ended. And um, I did quite well for the first couple of years. I, 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 uh, I was quite pleased initially how I went. But as history was to uh, show us, uh, we actually went for eight years and th three years into it, mm -hmm. uh, I, I lost my hope. And uh, I guess I didn't realise what I'd lost until many years later when John Curran started talking about hope. Mm. And by that stage, Bonnevere was um, flying. Um, it was really good and we'd been through a really rebirth process but then, bit by bit, it became absolutely crucial for me to drill down 
um, into into what happened to me, how it happened, and why it happened, and um, I guess I didn't fully understand that process until I worked with ghostwriter Margie Thompson on the uh, Resilient Farmer book, mm-hmm. and when, and when she presented that in the form that it is today, I suddenly realised that I was always going to have a crash. Yeah, um, an emotional crash because I actually hadn't been taught enough uh, to, to really to steer around such a, a, a an occasion. So I I never actually knew Aaron that I had depression mm-hmm. uh, until I was well and truly past it. But I knew I was in a place that I'd never been before, and. Um, it got that bad. I hated going out on the farm mm-hmm. because all it was for me was a miserable experience. Uh, I'd gone from being arguably the most excited and enthusiastic farmer you'd ever seen to a guy that didn't even want to go out. And uh, Wendy used to hate me being in the house and she'd say, get outside and do something. I'd say, I'll just get kicked in the arse out there. I'm not going. Yep. And uh, how how the hell she put up with me, I don't know. But I um, I managed to get through that time. I still don't know how I did that. Actually, um, um, there's been um, a few people that haven't got through. And when I've mm-hmm. seen what happened with them, I realised how bloody close I probably was to not to not actually making the cut. But I did. And uh, so writing the book and the subsequent process around that. Um, it was just like one step after another. And I realised once I'd done that that I had nothing like the toolkit that you need to take on the job of modern agriculture. The only thing that I'd practised with consistent ability in my life was uh, work harder. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I would imagine that there'll be quite a few farmers still in that mode. I see them all the time. And if, I, if there's one thing that you learn out of this broadcast is it's a bugger of a way to go because it never, ever works. There's a, there, there'll be a point when you, you when hard work just turns to um, the dust and you just can't do it anymore. It'll probably come when you finally realise that you can't win with that process. And that's what happened to me. Yeah. It's um, um that's that's pretty much my backstory. Where I through college, uh, right through my early days of farming, uh, I had a big motor. I could really turn on the work if I needed to. Mm-hmm. And um I just see that in, and particularly in young males, but it carries on a lot of males right through their life. It's Often, um, it's all. It's, it's often when it gets dangerous, driven by pride, and um, and so, yeah. If you're feeling like you're working hard and not getting anywhere, that's probably true. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough thing to tell other people, but uh, I I certainly understand how to moderate that kind of behaviour now, both in myself and other people. Yeah, so it's interesting. You're a similar age and generation to, um, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm not not saying you're old, Joe, but it's to my late father and he, his description through some of those years, it was like farming in a cave, and every time you stuck your head out, you were getting bloody kicked or shot at. It was, um, and there was nowhere to go further back. But you talked there, and I think that that's sort of the reason I'm reflecting that you you talked about losing hope because in your article you talk about the four pillars or the four key things that uh, of um, Hope, purpose, connection, and love. So you'd sort of, yeah. Do you want to explain on those? And you felt you lost hope. Well, how were the, were the others there? I mean, you talk well, how you know one or two of that losing one or two of those, but three's a three out of four is a dead end, or a, it's the end of the road. Yeah. If, if anyone had told me um, even five, five, six years ago that I would spend, so I'm in, I live in Blenheim now, and I spend most of my time, a lot of my time, counselling people. Uh, so, so a lot of people in New Zealand know about me, and I've, I've allowed myself to be pretty public. And so I'm learning all the time from the uh, what I call soft interaction with those people. 
Mm. Uh, what I mean by soft, I mean I mean I don't uh, try to I'm, I don't try to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm just a guy that knows a few practical tips of how you can divert your mind away from some stuff that could be really dangerous for you and let you have an opportunity to see things in a different way. So there's a common theme. That's where the four key things came for, from for me. I deal with quite a lot of people every week through all sorts of mediums. They come and see me, they ring me, we Zoom, we do all sorts of stuff. Nearly every one of them has got more than one of those four things missing. So mm. the average human being uh, can cope pretty well with the loss of somebody close to them if the rest of their life is in good nick. Uh, most people can cope with a pretty severe drought if their relationships and all that sort of stuff and their support is really good. Uh, a lot of people can cope with a whole lot of stuff, but if they suddenly wake up one day and find that their uh, primary relationship, their love is gone, uh, that can be pretty testing. So I suddenly started to realise that a lot of the people that I were interacting with and either lost love, lost connection, lost purpose, or lost hope. Usually they were fine until they'd lost two, and in some cases even three of those things. Mm. Uh, I was a guy in my life, I have never not been loved. Um, but when the big drought was on, I lost my sense of purpose, I lost my sense of hope. And then I took up um, drinking to drown my pain, to numb the pain of all of that. And uh, the results of that, usually once a week, I'd tell somebody something which I didn't really mean. <laughs> and, uh, and I finally became disconnected completely. So, so I became a broken, miserable little man uh, who just somewhere around five o'clock would drink himself to sleep, start and do it. And, um, yeah, I lived that life for a period of time. I'd been the chairperson of the Board of Trustees of Seaton School. I'd been um, uh, on the Lions Club for 18 years. I'd been a servant of mankind. I'd been a, probably a quite a good farmer. And all of a sudden, uh, I was just a, just a waste of space. And um, the saddest part about it really is I, I looked after the stock. I never, ever let any of the stock suffer. But I destroyed myself. And I shut people out in the life. So it became, Aaron, of huge interest to me to see if I could. You know, I, I was lucky enough. I got people like Dr. Derek Moot and uh, and uh, Star Reflexman Soil Conservation New Zealand Land Care Trust-led group that came in and renewed all my, all those four points. I, as I said, I never lost love, but it renewed my mm. hope, it renewed my purpose, and it renewed my connection. And so, so when I'm working with people now, all I look for when they come here is what what, what connections have gone and how can I um, arrest that slide and, and rein, reinvigorate them. Yeah. So it's loss, I mean, looking at those four, so it's love, connection, purpose, and hope. Is hope sort of the last one to go or the one that you, it's the other three it results from the other three. You've got the other three. You likely have hope. You, you know, if um, um, is there any priority there, well, or how they link together? Uh, the way the what the exact order of how they go um, varies a bit from one person mm -hmm. to the other. Um, but I find in reigniting people, uh, so so you know, like working with people, I soon learned that reigniting hope was one of the best places to go. And to do that, you had to probably connect people with somebody. So I'm a passionate advocate of mentoring. Um, but, you know, when I go around New Zealand, whether it's farming groups, whether it's urban, urban groups, very few people have ever gone to the point of actually having a, a um, an understood mentoring relationship. And so, you know, that's a good place to start. But if you can restore people's hope and... I've got all sorts of techniques that I do uh, for that, but one of them is to find out from the person who's depressed exactly what are the. I, I, I'll arrive at a house where there might be a husband and wife. The wife's rung me. Uh, the husband's just a mess. He might have been to the doctor and got some um, some pills to calm him down a bit. 
and I'll arrive with uh, five sheets of paper and we'll sit down and we'll have a bit of a chat, just ease up. And, you know, the reason I'm putting this in because there's going to be that many or there's that many people out there in this kind of place right now, mm. uh, we all need to learn these techniques because uh, they work so well. And I'll say to the, uh, the couple once that we've got a little bit of dialogue going and what have you, I'd like for the next period of time just to calmly write down the five things, one thing on each sheet of this of of this paper, one thing per sheet, the five things that are worrying you the most. And nearly every time uh, the husband will pipe up and say, we need 10 or 15 sheets of paper. And I'll <laughs> say, no, 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 we're not going there. What we're going to do is we're going to spend as long as it takes just to get five things. Mm-hmm. And so away they'll go, and um, and that could take quite a bit of time, uh, depending on just sometimes people have got something big which has happened, which is, you know, like that's obviously a bit different. But mostly a depressed person has got the weight of the world on their shoulders and their actual actions and forward movements virtually stop. So their head's racing and their arms and legs have stopped. And so we spend time doing that, and we finally end up being sure that this is containing all the five, that the five that are the worst things, the things that are really sucking it out. And they'll say, yeah. And then I say to them, right, out of those five, which is the worst one? And almost invariably, the broken person will go, that one there, and point at whatever it is, mm-hmm. that one there. So I reach over and get the other four, and I say to them, are these other four for the next week? Will these four be okay if we just forget about them? Or if there's something to do with them, I'll, I'll look after it for you. And I fold the paper over and just pop it in my pocket. I like to make that visual. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, right, this is the one that's really worrying you most. I don't want you to think about anything else, but let's start really working on what we can do about that. And sometimes it's just a matter of we need to get somebody else in, uh, somebody that they usually that they already know, but they've all locked up and they haven't been doing that. And the reason, so once you get somebody actually concentrating on the one thing, uh, that starts the process of returning their focus to actually doing something. And... I've found over the years, if you go and say, oh, I'll take everything off you, you leave that person feeling hopeless. Mm -hmm. But if you actually put some support around that primary problem, uh, they'll start activating their capability that they had before uh, to to that point. And, And I'll say to them then, I'm going to go now and I'm going to ring you in a week and I'll come back in about nine days' time and we'll sit down and see how things are going. And when I when I ring up, I'll say, oh, it's all right to come on Tuesday, and how's it going? Oh, oh, we've made some progress. And when I get in and sit down at the table again, I can always see huge progress with the person that's affected because they will have actually achieved something. And yep. uh, then I get the four sheets of paper that had the other four problems out when I see that they've made significant progress on that, and I say, right. Which one are we going to work on next? And nearly every time, and I'm only talking about people that are in you know, the first stages of depression, but when we're going through these tough times, that's the time to nail these things yeah. if we could all get our skills up. And the guy or the woman, whoever it is that's depressed, will say, I can do, I can do this. I actually am yeah. back in gear. I'm back in gear, Doug. And um, that's where I don't know how many times I've been involved with uh, couples in a situation like that. And uh, and then sometimes, you know, six or eight months later, I'll get a ring and they'll say, you know, remember you came around that day. Man, that helped. Yeah. So so you don't have to be a rocket scientist or anything to to, um, have the confidence to intervene with friends or a mate in that kind of way. Just help them to re-establish uh, control. So, you know, to me, a head suffering depression is like a spaghetti can. When you look, rip the lid off and you look in the top, it's just a mass of strands of, of 
spaghetti and tomato sauce and it's all red hot. Uh, a sound mind has a sense of purpose restored. It has, uh, has connections to, um, to bounce those thought patterns off and uh, has a hope that uh, their worth is actually being um, taken them somewhere. So we were talking before we started recording, and I think it might have been you mentioned John Kerwin and some of his ideas. And, and one of the things he talks about, you know, the journey starts with that first step and that sort of thing. And and you, you, I'm going to come back to your process you're talking about there. But you also mentioned earlier on, you know, with depression, and there's, there's all stages of that. It can be people might not consider it depression, but it might be fairly mild. But one of the first things it does is affect your ability to reason and recognise that sort of thing. What's... um. What's your advice or your thoughts? You know, the person affected might not recognise it themselves, but for people that are, how do people make that first step or, or get help or, or who do they talk to? I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, getting new ones one thing, but before that you have to recognise the need, I guess. Well, I've, I've, I've actually had a call today from, from um, a mother-in-law of a, of a farmer and she said, I need your help. My, my son-in-law's, um, he's no good. And uh, what should I do? And I said, well, my experience is that often in a situation like this, uh, I said, does he accept that he's got a problem? And she said, no, he's, he's not really accepting mm. that at all. And I said, well, that's that's very normal for somebody who's heading down the depression road. Um, I think that's one of the things that possibly reading my book has done for a lot of human beings is it's it's allowed them, it's it's told in a way where they could feel that they're a bit like me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and by the time they get to the end of the book, they think, shit, I don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, and this lady said to me, you know, look, I'm, I've got to do something. I know I need to do something. I said, well, totally agree, but you're probably not the person to do it. I said, has this individual, um, has your son-in-law still got a few mates? And I said, sometimes people that are depressed have actually kicked most of them out of their life as well. And she said, yes, he, he, he has. And I said, well, I'm happy for you to ring one of those mates and say, look, um, I think you should go around and see this particular gentleman and say to him, buddy, are you all right? You know, look, I'm a bit worried about you. And uh, suggest that he um, get in touch with somebody like me or somebody else, a psych in town or something. There's some amazing people working in this area. and." Uh, if he decides to say yes, and I find when people ring me like in that situation, I don't ever ring other people. Mm-hmm. They have to ring me. If, they have, if they're not ready to ring me, they're not ready for me to help. Yeah. And I can't help if they don't. And often if I feel they're bad, just whip them onto somebody else. But there are people out there that can help. And so that the, the part about that is often, especially if it's reasonably new, when the person starts telling you and downloading all the stuff that's going on, it usually comes in an avalanche. Yeah. And by the time they've finished, uh, the avalanche has taken most of the material off the slope and dumped it in the gully where it belongs. Yeah. Yeah. And the person feels a whole lot better, and it's like the first step. You know, like Kerwin talks about the first step. He, that man, by gosh, he's done a lot of good for New Zealand, that man. Uh, just helping helping us all to soften the stigma around this yeah. so that we actually, uh, because it's so widespread and there are so many people at any given time that are battling, battling, battling in this zone. Um, yeah. So, you know, look, it's, 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 not, it's not a problem to be feared. It's just to be a problem that needs to be addressed. But, and look, this, you know, um, it, it might be a bit of a, a dark question, but for yourself, was it that sort of process and help there, or did you get sort of lucky when you talk about your own experience? Um, well, I don't think I, I definitely feel I got lucky. Uh, I, um, <laughs> beef and lamb's very own John Ladley probably was the first person who almost I, I, I just rejected everything. And he almost one day just absolutely insisted that I go to a seminar in, in, in Canterbury. And it just happened that the seminar he took me to, uh, my light went on to solution. One hour, one day, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Derek Moot gave me hope. 
And yeah. so, you know, John Landley, uh, without, with, uh, I, you know, one can never tell uh, what would have happened. Uh, there might have been another opportunity. Uh, and who knows? No, you know, no one will ever be able to know. But I know that I tried to resist uh, going to that place. And that's why I recommended to this, um, this mother-in-law today uh, that she not be the person to try to uh, challenge the situation, but uh, invariably broken people uh, don't feel that anyone they already know has any answers to help them. Mm. And yep. so a, a buddy, not that's possibly a wee bit wrong, I said, somebody who comes from a slightly different angle who is possibly holding uh, some respect still in that person, uh, or they are respected by that person, should I say, uh, is often can make some massive breakthroughs. But another thing I find, Aaron, is a lot of people out there dead scared when they're dealing with this thing. Don't be scared. Mm. If, you, if you've got a person in your community or you love them or whoever it is, or somebody that you really, and you can see them heading into this territory, uh, don't be afraid of saying the wrong thing. Be more afraid of not actually doing anything at all. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, that sort of what we're talking about yeah. is trying to get away from it just happening by or, or the solution coming about by chance or somebody helping by chance, but actually, um, yeah, people being aware of it and as well, you say, actually doing something rather than just hoping it comes right. Yeah, yeah, like so, so there's, you know, like I, I know. Uh, uh, around the country, up in Gisborne, there's a there's a guy, uh, young fella that I know pretty well, Steve Thompson, set up a, a surfing group. Uh, you know, like never underestimate, and particularly with the times that we've got at the moment, never underestimate the value of taking people away in in, in just small groups and learning a new skill. Um, it might be surfing, it might be bowling. It might be uh, farm, golf, or ordinary, you know, whatever. Uh, and, you know, we're in lockdown at the moment, well, as I'm making this with you, but we won't be forever. We're, you know, a week or so's time, we might be back for this stuff. And we're sure as hell going to need to be a whole lot better in mental health than we've ever, ever, ever been before. Mm. And I'm not way kind of exciting because a, a crisis, you know, the old saying, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> um, we don't actually, as human beings, we don't actually look for solutions until we have problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and for me, the, the man who's talking on this uh, podcast today, my biggest problem became my biggest solution. It was so bad that I had to redesign myself from the ground up. And the person I am now, I'm so much happier with than the person I ever was before. So we're going to, um, it's probably a good segue, although I have got one more question. We we, bet we should uh, talk about your article, I guess, which we, in part we have, but it's certainly some other things about about dealing with the crisis. But I know when we were arranging this, you reckon it could be pretty short, but I said, oh, I think it could be a bit longer. One of the questions I did want to ask you, because um, there's, there's a lot of stuff in this, and and um, and um, I know it's, you know, it's increasingly people are talking about it more, and if this podcast contributes to that, great. Um, on that, it's just reminded me, we will put a link in the in the blurb here on this podcast to Doug's website and to Doug's book if you want to read more, find out more, think it might help you or somebody you know or love. Um, one I was going to ask, Doug, it actually occurred to me when I was reading some of your stuff, do you, would you consider yourself an extrovert? Um, oh, I, I, don't re- I don't really know. I, um, mm. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it like, yeah. about myself in that regard. I, I, I just see myself as as who I am, and um, mm. I, I have um, uh, pretty strong views that I don't buckle on very easily. Um, yeah. yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just it's one of the things in what we do in in Beef and Lamb New Zealand with you know our tech transfer extension, call it what you will, is trying to have a good handle on on our people and and you know farmers um maybe it's just new zealand farmers but farmers worldwide tend to be that um rugged individual man alone type thing um reasonably introverted in behavior and that they get on with things they don't share their emotions whereas all the social science will tell you you know the majority of people um over 50 percent are extra extroverts and I, i sometimes wonder if that's one of the things and it wasn't meant to put you on the spot it was just um a question that occurred to me whether that's one of the issues we do have 
for a lot of people, whether in an introverted business, but they're extroverted by nature, whereas, you know, they gain energy from interacting with other people, whereas the business doesn't have a lot of that day to day unless they go out and, and seek it. But um, one of the things that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a high level um, of the people that present to me are high, high achievers or mm-hmm. tend to be high achievers. Yep. So, you know, the old adage that the higher you uh, climb, the further it is to fall. Um, there's a there's a direct co-relationship between people who are having a pretty big crack mm. with with this process, and um, I've uh, I've been widely circulating a one-liner out there, uh, which my uh, youngest son Richard Avery, who works and lives in, in Western Australia, shared with me a while ago, where he was doing ultra-distance running and um, putting an awful lot of pressure on himself and having a lot of failures. And sometimes having self-doubt about his own ability, and uh, he taught me this one-liner: "You win, or you learn. You only lose if you don't learn." Okay. And I think for people, when you're having a, a big crack in business or whatever it is, uh, there's some pearls of wisdom in that thinking. Because another thing that I realised, and I uh, read a lot of. Um, uh, uh, try to read a lot of stuff to support my own uh, ability in, in the work that I do. And one of the people that I've been learning from hugely lately is uh, Brene Brown. And uh, she wrote a book uh, called Daring to Lead. But one of the, one of the parts in, uh, in her teachings, which I absolutely love, is when we're young, we know young people are vulnerable um, and a lot of people sort of have the notion that you become an adult when you uh, are no longer vulnerable. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's actually 100% wrong. You become a, a proper adult when you can deal with your shame and vulnerability. And when I look back in that drought time, I'd been a really, really successful farmer up until that point. And through that period of time, I had no understanding of how to deal with my vulnerability. So that leads me to another thing, which I, if you're struggling, if you write it on a big piece of paper or write it on the bathroom mirror where you see it once a day, write, I am enough. Mm-hmm. And, learn, and learn that at times in life, I, I, see, I'd only ever gone one way. I'd only ever gone up. And then all of a sudden, all my life, I got into the rugby teams I wanted to. I was the captain of this and the star of that. I was the shiny little boy that was doing so well. But when I finally hit a rock that I couldn't win, no matter how hard I worked, I had no way to deal with my vulnerability and shame. Mm. And down I went. And what happens to people then, and it happened to me, is you start numbing. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. there's lots of different ways of numbing, you know, um, gambling, drinking, drugs, eating. Um, you know, we, there's, there's so many different ways of numbing. And the problem that arises with numbing is it might numb the pain, but it all, also numbs the ability and the pleasure. Mm. And at a time when uh, there's pressure on, you know, we we need to um, remember our, our life discipline. I didn't remember that. I just numbed myself with alcohol. I know uh, women that have had problems in their lives, they numb themselves with eating or shopping. Um, it's still numbing and it still doesn't work. And it's, a little bit of numbing is fine on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's kind of like, to me, a psychology is um, is an incredibly exciting place because the greatest opportunity available for the next world will be in better minds. Mm. I see that's sort of, you know, where I was clumsily going with the, the extrovert introvert thing around people understanding themselves and that, um, that saying you had there that I am enough, not um, how you, you think you should be or what you should be doing or how you should behave and appear. So, um, it's time to segue on a wee bit though and you talked about the next world and you talked earlier about the things are going to be are going to change and where we go and I guess that's we've talked about a fair bit of it but that's mainly what your article about bouncing forward from a crisis um 
what's your key sort of uh, your key messages there which is normally what we start a podcast with but let's uh, get to it finally what's your your key lessons or what you think is going to happen when we come out of this when we're in the well we're never going to be out past COVID but past the COVID-19 sort of lockdown and, and social change that's happened yeah okay so so we, uh, uh, go put my farm hat back on here again and and at Bonneveree uh, uh, I, I've noticed, that, and Fraser has also noticed that a, a lot of talk uh, sort of back off uh, the kind of um, regulations that we've been putting in around uh, uh, um, emissions and uh, water quality and all that sort of stuff. And some of those things I think are ridiculous, but there's a lot of them that aren't. And one of the things that I'm more sure than ever is that coming out of this, the kind of clients and customers that we and consumers that we want to attach to, uh, whether they're overseas or whether it's our home people, are going to be more concerned about the the, the history, the validity, the the authenticity of their food than they've ever ever been in the past. Uh, we we are, are not going to go back to an area or to a time where people say, I couldn't give a, a toss whether this is uh, properly produced or not. There will be more interest. And so to that end, uh, we're bouncing forward. We've had a, um, uh, a uh, dashboard created by Greg Shepherd and Nelson, which brings to our, uh, brings into basically two two screens every little detail about our business. Praise uh, is going through an accreditation process out there now. We're going to bounce forward from this, not bounce back. Bounce back would be uh, try to restore everything as it was. Mm-hmm. Rubbish idea. Bounce forward means you examine what has actually happened here. You know, we're going to, as a country, we're going to have to say, well, how did we get so badly caught? This is this is the biggest scolding our, our world has had in, in recent times, probably ever if you took the volume of people affected. And so the, the confident and the excellent position is the, the hopeful position, the purposeful position, the connected position, the loving position, <laughs> the four, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. is to dig deep and say, well, if we restore things as they were, we're still just as vulnerable to this as we were before. But mm. if we create um, mechanisms, both, and so, you know, if I'm talking as a farmer, I'm not talking about, you know, you going out there and thinking you're going to be the prime minister. At your own level, creating mechanisms that will make your product just that bit better, just that more secure, just that better accounting for what it does, just that little bit less um, infringing and what happens with off your farm, like uh, leaching or whatever. So, you know, to me, it's kind of it's kind of an exciting period of time in a way, and that I've dreamed for a long time that New Zealand should really only be a value-based economy, and maybe this uh, will be the event that means that's the only place that we've got a future. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few years ago, um, Sir Paul Callaghan uh, uh, at the Strategy New Zealand conference produced one of the most um, mind-changing uh, effective presentations uh, in, at the Strategy New Zealand conference and I listened to it so many times it was ridiculous and in that he talked about creating value and how a lot of what we do doesn't actually create much value at all, it just keeps us busy and that really linked to Doug Avery, who, as a young man, was as happy as hell while I was really busy until that wasn't returning me sufficient. And in that process, I realised that in my farming process from that day on, we had to start looking at greater value. So the recovery of Bonneveree from being nearly broke in, um, in uh, uh, 1998 to where it is today is a 20-year story of innovation, of value-add, and uh, systems growth. Uh, systems for thinking, systems for integrating. Um, we've just got a whole different approach. And that's given us a straight line of growth for 20 years. 
It's going to get a bit of a wobble with the current drought. <laughs> a little wobble. Yeah. Because one of the things you talk about is the biggest obstacle isn't sort of the disruption so much, but the fear of that change. And, and, and I guess this ties all on the back of what you've been talking about, the resilience and people's ability to handle things. And the, the quote you have in there is from the futurist Thomas Frey, that the future creates the present. And I guess that's sort of a, a sum up of what you've been talking about. Do you just want to expand on a wee bit more? I mean, is that sort of along the same line of Stephen Covey that they want to read about, talks about start with the end in mind and work backwards from there? Yeah, well, see, see that that was once again um, uh, Thomas Frey spoke here in New Zealand. He's a world class futurist thinker, and 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 about ten minutes of that talk that he did had a massive impact on me as well. So I I show in my presentations a picture of uh, of my truck with the front window and the, the rear vision mirror, and I say to people, how many people drove here tonight? And uh, most of my presentations are in halls, so pretty much everyone drove. And, and I'll say to them, well, how many of you backed your, reversed your vehicle here? And they'll all have a bit of a giggle and say, shit, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> and I'll say, well, when you drive your car, you could reverse it uh, all the way to Timaru or to, to Auckland or wherever you're parked. But the actual easy way is to drive forward. Uh, you've got the rear vision mirror to look out the back. It's only small. The big view is out uh, in that massive great window space, uh, it's so much easier to head forward. So Thomas Frey's um, process around that was uh, our history is known to us. Uh, we feel comfortable with that. The future throws in what I, you just said, fear. Uh, we don't know what it's going to throw at us and how we're going to get through. Uh, but if, if the problems that we face here in New Zealand today uh, right now, we have never, ever faced before. So there's no, there is no relationship with the past. There is no knowledge from the past that will know exactly how to deal with this. So my advice to people is um, ask yourself, where would you like to be in a year's time? Uh, I, uh, As a storyteller, I tell past stories. I tell current stories. But the stories I love to tell are about the future. Where will you be in the future? And in the words of going back to Thomas Frey, when you can see where you want to be, your mindset will start to cope, uh, to concentrate on what you need to do to make that journey. So one of the things that I see, if you take a depressed person, they are basically clinically fragmented in the mind. They're at their heads, and when you talk to them, the energy that they've got is all over the bloody place. Uh, a purpose, a purposeful man on a mission or woman on a mission, their focus will be on where they want to go and their mindfulness will go on what's the next step of that journey. Look, at um... so a, there, is a, there is a process, Aaron, that wraps around that, and I call it the four C's. Have, mm -hmm. um, have I told you about the four C's? No, I don't think you have. Please do. Ah, uh, well, the four C's. See, fear is created out of a lack of knowledge. Uh, worry is a, is is a waste of space. No one's ever gained anything. And fear, as soon as somebody understands something well, they don't have any fear anymore. If they know they can move through. So I get a lot of people come to see me also and they say, Doug, um, I want to double the size of my farm like you've done a couple of times. Um, mm -hmm. And I say, oh, exciting. Um, are you looking to me to help? And they say, well, yeah, 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 sort of. Um, I'll say to them, when are you going to start? And they'll say, um, oh, I'm going to start soon, but I just haven't quite got the confidence yet. And I say, really? You're going to double the size of your farm and you reckon you're going to start off feeling confident. Buddy, good luck. I said, I don't know anyone who's ever done that felt confident at the start. And they'll look at me and they'll say, Doug, no, what I actually really meant was um, I'll, I'll start when I've got the capability. That's what I'm going to start. Yeah, I'll soon I'll, I'll have the capability. I haven't got that at the moment. And I'll say to them, well, in my whole experience of life, capability is something you develop on the journey of progress. It's something which you develop once you're actually engaged. And then I'll tell them there's 
four C's in a set of work and a growthy set of work. The fourth C is confidence. That's what you get when you've actually got to the point where it's all working and you know that it's going to all be good and it's going to make you money or whatever, make you happy, whatever you wanted to it to do. The third C is capability, but there's two C's come before that. And I'll say to the person, you know, there's four C's. What do you reckon the first one is? Oh, Doug, I don't know. And I say the first thing that you have to do in life if you're going to do something that's really big is you've got to commit. You've actually got to take your mind and say, right, this is what we're going to do. Who do I need in the team? Where do I want to be in a year's time? And once you've committed, you come up with the hardest C of the whole lot. And that C is courage. Everybody that goes on a journey has to go through the period where they're living on courage. No one likes being there. If you're lucky, some people that are watching you will say, by God, that Doug Avery, he's got some courage. Look at him go. But most people will look back and say, nah, he's bitten off too much. It won't work, you know, and what have you. And you, you have to live through that period of courage. And it's, it's, it's pretty much comes, that's the reason why most people don't do stuff is because they're so afraid of exposing their vulnerability and failing. And so when you're in that courage stage, when, you, uh, when you're waking up at two o'clock in the morning and what have you, it's such an important stage to be in and that's why you need a mentor because when you're going through there, you need somebody to say, we talked about this, we knew this was the stage you had to go through. How are we going on the development of capability? And that forces you into that section. And then as your capability starts to come on, oh, my goodness, then all of a sudden you start feeling that glimmer of confidence. And when you get really cranking into it, you think, my gosh, this is successful. You've got a new skill set. You've got the living the dream. You've seen this massive uh, set of four Cs go through. And guess what then? You're ready for another four set. <laughs> and it's interesting. Yeah, and what you say, like a lot of us, I suspect not just farmers, but adults generally tend to think they go in reverse order. That will start when now we've got that, the, the confidence and the capability and the rest will follow, but it's, you're saying it's the other way around. Yeah, well, it's just like Thomas Frey, you see, you know, like there's a kind of a, a, um, there's a big perception that if I, um, if I do a great job today, that'll make tomorrow better. Well, that's probably true on just a daily basis. But when you're talking about uh, a system tree designed for your farm so it can cope with drought better or if you're talking about introducing a whole new um, system of grazing or plants, species on your farm, whatever the, whatever the kind of challenge that you've taken up, uh, you have to know where the end goal is sort of likely to be to condense your thought patterns onto what you should, the energy that you need. I don't, I've never met anyone who's intelligent enough to think for everything and everybody. You've got to put your commit your mind power to the journey that you're doing. And uh, that'll be one of the most nourishing things for the human wellness that you can ever achieve. Um, it, it applies to, to people doing little jobs, big jobs, the whole nine yards. It doesn't, it doesn't just apply. I, I'm mentoring a few businesses here in Blenheim and uh, one of them's had about 350% increase since they started having more mind structure. Um, so it's something we've, we've, we've terribly overlooked. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It just takes um, uh, somebody to help you reset. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, um, just thinking about arguably, do you reckon um, we're committed to change whether we like it or not with what's happened with this crisis in the last five, six weeks and what's going to happen over the, the coming months. So um, in terms of where you think, we need, is it possible we may look back, it might be 10 years, it might be 20 years and go that it was um, it was a good thing in a way, indirectly, that we had this major shock to the, the way we operate and the way our businesses and particularly you know, our agricultural industry and its focus has been forced to change. Well, if I looked at my four grandchildren at the moment, I reckon they've had the greatest growth in their lives in the last six weeks that I've ever seen them have, the whole four of them. And uh, if you if you say to me uh, that you felt that the world was in a beautiful setting prior to this, I'm going to disagree with you. I've felt for some time, as I alluded to before, we'd, we'd lost uh, uh, our sense of value. 
Uh, we had people tearing around the place doing things that at uh, the moment they're finished, so they're of no value, no reuse or anything like that. And we needed to really pull our heads back in and have a reset. This is it. We, um, <laughs> I normally talk to people and tell them to disrupt themselves or be disrupted. Well, I'm afraid it's too late now. This is the biggest disruption uh, that's occurred to mankind, probably. And um, and the great minds, there's more innovation. I have become personally aware of more innovation in the last three weeks than any other time in my life. And I just think if you have the mindset uh, that you would like to be a part of that, well, today's the best way to start. Um, I, uh, as you know, I run Woolshed Workshops. We can't run those at the moment. My whole calendar was smashed uh, in three days, and that's fine. I'm, um, I'm working a bit on, uh, just um, online. But when we get out of this time, I believe that we will be in the most fertile position to go forward. And if you take me, the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life by a, a hundredfold over the next, next worst thing was my five years of depression. And that turned out for me to be the birthplace of the best 20 years. And that was a mindset change. Yeah, and that's probably that was a that was a rebuilding of my expectation. It was a learning to see beyond where I'd ever been able to see before. And that's where the line. Smart work replaced uh, uh, just drudgery work. And the one liner that I love putting with that is when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Nice. I was just looking for the line in your article exactly along the same lines. Solve your problems and turn them into opportunities. So that's probably a good place. I know we could probably keep talking about this. We've certainly talked longer than I think you initially thought we were going to. Um, is there anything you wanted to, to discuss or we, anything you wanted to discuss or that we haven't covered that you thought we would, Doug? No, just just no. anyone out there that's really struggling. If I've got time, I'll hear you. I'll hear you. I'll hear you. I'll try my best to hear as many people as I can. And if I can't hear you, I'm in the process at the moment of trying to uh, train up a few extra people to do more listening. Uh, we're, we're all given uh, two ears and one mouth, and my biggest trouble is to shut my mouth and open my ears, but. Uh, when people ring up, my wife has congratulated me on numerous occasions. You learned to shut up, Doug. Good boy. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> sure. And on that, all right, we're going to put links in the, in the, we'll put links to your website, which has links to where they can get your book and so on, in the blurb of this. Um, where else could people go for information? You, um, any other recommendations, oh, Doug? Yeah, no, don't forget about rural support and, um, and, and all the helplines. Uh, you know, there are skilled and trained people that uh, that are available to help, but I urge anyone listening to this has become a part of the team of capability around this stuff. You don't have to be, you know, for heaven's sake, don't get in and think you pretend to know everything, and I certainly don't. But for a lot of people, just having a, a calm listening ear uh, when they're going through a crisis is unbelievable. Right. Hey, look, Doug Avery, um, storyteller, company director, author, once upon a time a farmer, or once a farmer, always a farmer. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure.